0: and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Kevin Byrne, the Chief Analyst for Canadian Oil Markets, S&P Global Commodity Insights, about a piece he's written about Canadian oil pipeline capacity. This is a subject of endless debate in Canada, particularly in in Alberta, where he's situated in Calgary. So welcome to Energy Talks, Kevin.
1: Hi, it's good to be here.
0: Well, you and I have, I've interviewed you probably over the last six or seven years, and we've talked a lot about pipelines, but this is the first time I've seen an analysis from you that lays out all of the different components the variables that can affect how much pipeline capacity is available at any one time. And this has been a constant complaint from the industry is that pipe, their pipeline projects have been thwarted. And primarily we would talk about the Northern Gateway pipeline project that was canceled in 2016. It was 525,000 barrels a day. Then we have Keystone XL, which was 800,000 barrels a day that was Taxed by uh, President Biden when he came uh, came into power uh, in uh, in 2021, and Energy East, which TC Energy took off the table, withdrew its application from the from the federal regulator. All of that together is probably well over two million barrels a day of shipping capacity, and the industry has said it doesn't have enough pipeline space. Other including the premier of Alberta, Jason Kenney, have argued that in fact, there might be, a, you know, additional million barrels a day of capacity coming along with Trans Mountain expansion uh, and uh, additional uh, rate shipping and uh, what else? Uh, additional uh, increases in capacity within the existing system. So as that as background, give us the, the, a brief overview of the argument you set out in your piece, please.
1: Well, okay, so I, I was a contributing author, there was a team of us involved in this one. Um, it, you know, I think the paper came out of, it's always, you know, weighing in on pipelines is always a dangerous thing in Canada, but came out of the use of pipeline stackups um, in this discussion that I think without the appreciation of the, like you mentioned, the multiple variables. In the one, of course, is the supply outlooks will shift over time, and certainly we try our best today to do what we think it will be tomorrow, but it's ultimately an outlook, so it's imperfect. And then the pipelines themselves change over time. We've seen capacity expansions, but the system's also not a homogeneous system, and it's also a very large system. So in our outlook, I think pipeline capacity uh, leaving Western Canada will approach 5 million barrels per day. That is significant. And those pipelines go to different markets and they serve different crude grades as well. So it's not the case that you can simply stack them all up as we often see in these things and draw a simplified conclusion. And so we certainly provide our view in this paper, but um, kind of accustomed to the papers we do in this space, we wanted to provide people the pieces of the puzzle so they can kind of inform themselves.
0: Yeah, I have to confess that I'm as guilty as anybody about doing the stacking thing. You know, this much capacity for this pipeline plus this much capacity for that pipeline. Hey, we got lots of capacity. And that really isn't the way to, to look at this. So let's break down the various components of pipeline shipping capacity. And let's start with supply growth. Now, I interviewed you last month or the month before about a new forecast for the oil sands and you had revised your previous forecast down from nine hundred thousand barrels a day of new supply by 2030 to 500 barrels a day and but that's still half a million barrels a day of new oil supply that's going to have to be shipped someplace and are you still of the view that that much new production is going to be coming online
1: yeah, still our outlook. Um, it's only a couple months old. Certainly, the outcomes of the current federal policy may color that uh, a little bit further. But you know, two things happened in outlook, Mark, and one is we move forward one year in time, and so production is ramping up. So the nine hundred thousand to the current outlook, it was actually a downward revision of more like four hundred thousand. It wasn't that large because we we had supply come online. Um, But we continue to see a deceleration and flattening out of the growth profile of the Western Canadian Basin Um, because of this, you know, principally, first and foremost, it's this imperative of the investors to see greater financial returns from the oil and gas sector generally in the North American sphere. So if you're a public company, that's that's job number one, and a a shift in terms of the capital flow towards decarbonization as well. And then... Within what's left over, it's almost like what's my upstream, you know, investment. And that's going to be different for an oil sands company than an unconventional company because of the need to, you know, consistently drill in the unconventional to maintain a flat production profile. So they will, as you grow, you have to drill more to maintain that production profile in the unconventional. So we do see increases in upstream capital investment in that outlook, um, but certainly it's more muted than, muted than we would have seen in prior outlooks at the prices even that we're seeing today, which are softer than when we talked earlier in the year.
0: Right. And I think it's important to point out that if we're talking about 500,000 barrels of bitumen, but that's actually probably closer to 700,000 barrels of of, uh, of dilbit. Once you dilute the bitumen, which is consistency of peanut butter, to get it to flow in a pipeline, then you've actually got more. So are my numbers, does that make sense?
1: No, that's right. It, the The outlooks we give are on a bitumen basis, not a supply basis typically. And so on a supply basis, you have to include your blend, which is, you know, uh, depending on where it comes from, the oil sands, anywhere from a 20 to 30% um, blend. on a, this is a kind of on a ratio of a dill dil bit. So, you know, 70, 30, or 80, 20, if you did it the other way around, you get a bigger number, right? So it's one barrel of bitumen plus 1.4 ba- or 0. 0.4 barrels of Diluent, yeah. So it's a bigger number to get the exact value. I'd have to I'd have to check for you, Mark. I don't I don't have the exact delta.
0: Spoken like a true economist, Kevin. What can I tell you? Uh, so the point is that it is if shipping. If you produce five hundred thousand barrels a day of bitumen, you need more sh- shipping capacity than that to get it to market. So we'll leave it at we'll leave it at that. Now, one of the points that you make in your paper is that downstream markets will change over time. And you also say that risk over time, especially as the energy transition accelerates, downstream refinery demand at the end of the pipelines could shift and already more than 1.3 million barrels a day of North American refining capacity has been rationalized in the past three years with more expected. Please explain that.
1: Well, let me start with the latter. What we saw through I can think of it, you can think of COVID as a great rationalization, you know, so as we saw demand destruction and collapsing demand of all kinds of commodities through that period, as we basically hunkered down and didn't do anything and stayed in our homes. um, If you had something that was marginal or appeared to be marginal in the near future, rather than just turning it down, you turned it off. And so we think that accelerated the natural progression of rationalization that would have happened anyways. Um, and it delayed um, it delayed the turning on of projects that were in development as well, and that what led to some of the demand crunch in terms of meeting consumer demand on the you know oil and uh, refined product supply through through earlier this year, and we're still living with that outcome. So what we're, what what happens through transition is if if you see the per, you know the penetration of EVs accelerating, and that is in our outlook, you will see refinery demand. Or product demand that underpins refinery production, so just gasoline and diesel be impacted from that, and so it will be refineries drive or operate on margins so as. You have length on those refined products, so your demand softens those margins will weaken and someone will have to change what they're producing. or reduce what they're producing and that's rationalization rate rationalization or pivoting to other products, and so that is expected to impact the refining system globally, and that will change desirable destinations for crudes around the world
0: you know i found over the years i've been doing these interviews kevin that i turn out i'm kind of an economist whisperer and uh translating the what the economist says into into language that the average person and the people listening to this podcast can understand So basically if i've got this right so a number of, of, of refineries closed down because they were marginal, or you know demand sh- changed, and we expect more of that to happen over time as transportation electrifies, and there's less you know the the fuel for transportation shifts from diesel and gasoline over to to electricity, and then we have things like sustainable aviation fuel that begins to displace jet fuel, and then we have you know marine shipping who knows where that's going to go could be ammonia could be hydrogen that maybe is a little further down this decade or into the 2030s but the bottom line is it looks like demand destruction is going to begin in north america in the foreseeable future and that will affect the refinery capacity and demand for canadian oil have i summed that up reasonably
1: well well the whether that affects the demand for Canadian oil is a secondary question. The, the advantage I think North America has as a refining center, is it has some of the most complicated and complicated means heavy processing capacity typically. So the ability to adapt and take multiple feedstocks to meet your consumer demand. These refineries tend to be more resilient. They tend to be located in North America, in the U S Midwest to the Gulf coast. And they tend to be advantaged because of their access to onshore Canadian crude. So in that sense, Canada has a very good security supply source because it feeds a very competitive refinery system, but through transition with what the paper was saying is some of those de- demand points for Canada may shift and some of the pipelines we have leaving Canada do point to specific refineries or specific facilities and that may complicate the ability to move around them should their competitiveness change. And so not the point we're trying to make is over a longer period not all pi- routes to market well not all markets are equivalent and not all routes to market are going to be equivalent
0: A very interesting point so if a pipeline uh, basically goes from alberta to some refinery in wisconsin or some other place and that refinery shuts down then you basically lose the the pipe capacity
1: if you, yeah if you have no ability to move past that there's no route past it you, that's exactly it this is this is why tidewater is so of interest to any oil producer is because with a pipeline you, it is you know it's a straw I'm oversimplifying i'm sorry to the pipeliners listening but you you go from point a to point b with the ocean it is the ocean you can go from point a to pick any letter of the alphabet and you're going to go to the point in that alphabet that gives you the highest price
0: Okay, I, I want to follow up just quickly on, on one point that you made, and that is the resiliency of the, the complexity and sophistication of the refineries that are using Canadian crude. Now, does that mean that they, in fact, might be able to, you know, as, as domestic demand falls, that they might be able to then uh, export their product to, you know, Europe or, or Latin America or wherever it might be, and, and still maintain, you know, retain their capacity?
1: yes so if you have a more competitive refinery you're going to take market share from those that are less competitive even as the market contracts right so you can think of you know the, to, the the way we meet our refined product demand in north america already is through trade and we trade with europe europe tends to be short diesel and we'd send them diesel and we'd be short gasoline and we get gasoline from diesel to balance balance equation that trade is going to expand through time as the refineries generally compete for that market share that shrinks. And some of the refineries are going to pivot, right? You can see them becoming more petrochemical focused, or like you said, moving into sustainable aviation fuel and those sorts of things, becoming no longer, a dis, you know, in our view, not just necessarily a refinery, but a petrochemical complex.
0: So my takeaway from that is that to, to say that oil demand in Uh, North America will fall by X million barrels a day over time doesn't necessarily mean that Canadian oil, uh, demand for Canadian oil falls at that same rate. Canadian oil may turn out to be more competitive.
1: Yes, they're different. You're going to compete within the segment. So the crude oil producers are going to compete for refinery demand. The refineries are going to compete for refined product demand. And it, they're linked, but they do have competitive, distinctive markets they're going to be competing in.
0: Okay, let's talk about some of the other variables at play here. Uh, the, the next one is nameplate pipeline capacity does not equal effective capacity. If you could explain that.
1: Sure. It's, it's, it's just like you and me. We have a car. We use it a certain amount as a utilization rate. It's probably very low. Um, not like a pipeline, which tends to be high. But even, even if you're driving your car constantly, Markham, you're going to have to take it in. You're going to have to get tires replaced. You're going to get the engine tuned up. They do that kind of work on pipelines too. They tune them up. They reduce capacity and pressure and times different points of the year to do seasonal maintenance. So what is advertised as the installation capacity is not necessarily the capacity they run on on an annualized basis.
0: What, what are they likely to run on? 80, 85%, 90%, 95%?
1: Well, it depends on where you are, and I'm not a pipeline expert, we have to project, we have to estimate, and that's, that's hard for us to estimate, but we've seen the, these pipelines running near capacity, like every molecule, that, and, and that's from a pipeliner's perspective. There's a producer perspective to this, to this as well, that you don't necessarily want your e- egress system running at 100%, because you can think about it, You you have seasonality in the way you produce your crude oil, you have multiple actors producing, all trying to individually maximize, which often is is produced as much as you can. And as a result, what you can have is variability in that volume that needs to leave the market. So if you're running at that just-in-time full system, should something happen to the pipeline, they have an upset and have to reduce the pressure on it, should something happen downstream at a refinery have something happen, or even seasonal maintenance, that will have repercussions all the way up the system and can cause price dislocations in Western Canada. And we have seen that in the past as well. As well,
0: Next variable. Pipelines are not homogeneous or interchangeable. What does that mean?
1: So it's two parts. One is pipelines serve specific markets. So if I take one pipeline, it's to go to one market, not necessarily will that pipeline get me to another market. A really obvious example is Trans Mountain goes to Vancouver. I cannot take another pipeline to go to Vancouver versus a lot of pipelines go to the, go into the Midwest and then further down to the Gulf Coast. The other one is that pipelines often carry one grade of crude oil. You can batch. You can have them doing different things. Trans Mountain is another good example. It's a batch system, so it carries heavy sour crude oil. It carries light crude oil, and it, it carries refined product. That's not super common. It does happen. Um, often out of Western Canada, we have pipelines that are dedicated to light crude oil, and we have pipelines that are dedicated to heavy crude oil.
0: Okay. uh, The next one, existing pipeline capacity can decline over time.
1: So this is something we've seen. We've seen aging pipelines where the operator and or the regulator will impose reduced capacity. Uh, They'll do this by reducing the pressure on the pipeline system, which can improve the integrity of the system. And so that can reduce the actual flow through those pipelines. And this also goes to the fact that it's very similar as well, that some pipeline service different markets that could have shifts in demand as well.
0: Okay. So we've talked about the complexity of the system, the, the, uh, the variables that go into, the, into determining what pipeline capacity really is. Uh, we know that uh, supply is likely to increase between now and, and 2030. And in just, we just got a couple of minutes left before I have to let you go, Kevin. So what does it all mean?
1: I think the way to think about it is when you see a pipeline stack up, like anybody walking down the street, we've seen them, they show up in newspapers and blog posts and everything like that. You're, what they are is a double forecast. So there's a forecast of what we think supply will be, and we've can we we've spent a lot of time debating that, but it's also a forecast of what we think these pipelines will operate at and what the crude will be like that'll fit through those pipelines and what those end markets will look like over time. So between now and 2030, it will be what it is. But as we look out to 2050, where we're doing a lot of these net zero planning, we need to think about that other piece that we are forecasting the other side of this as well.
0: Okay. Now I feel like I have to do some economist whispering again. Basically what we have in place uh, will serve Western Canada and that's primarily Alberta well into the 2020s. But there are concerns that maybe later on in this decade, uh, we, the industry runs up against pipeline shipping constraints again.
1: Yeah, so if you take our production forecast, and you run it against our outlook for pipelines, so dueling forecasts, what we find is that you'll, even with Trans Mountain being brought online, and it, we think it has to come online pretty much as promised, or we could overrun, Um, By the late 2020s, even even in mid 2020s, we'll have that utilization rate on that overall system, so all those pipelines above 90%. And so you think about a system that's 5 million barrels, and we have seasonal swings in production because of seasonal maintenance in the upstream, where production can swing over a quarter million barrels. So it can, you know, if there is something to happen downstream or on the pipeline systems themselves, or you have people go gangbusters in the upstream, you could be running up against that physical capacity of the system. So what we're saying is, although it appears in our balances the system will look OK because the, the supply line is below the total stack up line, it's not as clear cut. And there is the potential for price volatility down the road as well. Of course, these are both forecasts, Markham. And as you know, and we talked about right at the beginning, these things can change uh, as we as we continue to analyze them.
0: Well, I can attest from experience, Kevin, having talked to you about pipeline and oil sands uh, production forecasts over the last, like I said, six or seven years, that it changes a lot. They certainly changed a lot in, in that period of time. Well, look, I've got to let you go. Thank you very much for this. I always appreciate your insight in, into the oil sands and, and pipeline issues. You've done a lot to educate me over the years. And I, I think that our listeners are going to find this very interesting.
1: All right, thank you. Take care.